Lord Jesus Christ, we are thankful for the heavenly visions that we receive from your word and through the spirit who, who compels us in our own spirits and, and drives us towards uh, the callings that you have for us as your people. Uh, God, I pray uh, this morning that as we communicate uh, who we are and where we're going as a church, that you would uh, strengthen my words, that they would reflect uh, your scripture um, as far as your scripture gives us uh, counsel and direction uh, in our time. And I pray, God, for our hearts and our minds to be receptive. And I pray, God, that you would increasingly uh, set us apart for your work here in this city. And I pray, God, that you would increasingly make us attractive as your people uh, in, this, uh, in this dark world. In your son's name, amen. So as... Um, you know, at the beginning, so we will have, uh, you know, in August, uh, our family will have been up here for 10 years. The church is, will not be 10 years old, um, but it's, it's, we've been at this for a little while. And at the, at the beginning of, of a church plant or anything new that you're starting, um, you're not really sure. Uh, you have a, some ideas, you have some visions, but you're not really sure uh, how it's all going to uh, transpire. And uh, you continue to trust the Lord to establish your steps as you make plans. But as time moves on, um, your, your clarity increases, um, your vision increases, or your vision deepens, I, I should say. Uh, and, but exactly what you're doing becomes a lot more clear. So this, every year we have... Um, one of these services where we explain kind of the who we are and what we're doing as a church. And um, every year it gets a little bit more specific in regard to our plan. Now, every year we also hand out a document. So everybody should have received these, one of these as they came in. Uh, if not, they're available in the back and you can grab one on your way out. And I'm not going to go through that in hardly any detail at all. We'll look at a few things. Um, but I would encourage you to read that for the details. I, I do know there are a few of you in here that stumbled across somehow, oh, by God's grace, um, it would have had to have been, uh, in, on our early websites and our early documents, and we're really compelled uh, just by, by what we wrote, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, but God has really done a great work over the years here in creating a, a people around, uh, around these ideas, around His Spirit's work, in the church. And so this morning, I, uh, I think it's going to have a little bit more of a prophetic edge. We've been working through the books of Revelation and Daniel, and those two books are uh, strongly prophetic uh, in regard to God's people in His, in his work in them and, and through them and preparing them for um, life as Christians in hostile cultures. And... Um, we are going there. We are going there. So I kind of wanted to pull out some of the things from Daniel and Revelation. So when we, when we um, you know, Lawrence has just finished up Westside, Daniel, he's going to start it here. But the people of God in the book of Daniel, it is, is, it is Israel exiled in Babylon, you know, in Revelation, the warning is, to, is for the people of God to come out of Babylon. Babylon is this, this metaphor, it's a kingdom metaphor uh, for uh, power and greed 
and wealth and sexual immorality and, and all, of the, all of these kinds of worldly and fleshly things. And so in Daniel, they're in Babylon because of generations and generations and generations of wickedness and unrepentance of God's people. And so he exiled, exiled them. Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem, took it over, killed a lot of people and took the rest into Babylon. But God did not bring them to Babylon to, to die or to, to lead meaningless lives. He gave them hope and he gave them promises, not only for their future, but for the immediate place where they were at. He told them to build homes and to plant gardens and to marry off their children and to pray for the welfare of the city of Babylon to pray for the welfare of the city of Babylon, because if Babylon did well, the people of God would do well. And they would shine as a light. They would shine as a light to the, to the, the unbelieving world around them and still demonstrate uh, the wisdom and the power and the glory and the beauty of God. And you see in the book of Daniel highlights of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and how, and how the power and the truth and the beauty of God radiated from those few examples in the nation of Babylon. There were great challenges, great challenges to Israel as it lived in Babylon, even to the point of death, even to the point of death. And Revelation warns us of the same thing. Be faithful even unto death, and you will receive the crown of life. And there's the constant pressure, and, the, and the, the pressures that were upon Israel, even to the point of death, came because of the pressure of the culture to literally bow down to the idols of Babylon, to worship the, uh, the emperor, the, the, the ruler, King Nebuchadnezzar and, and the other rulers. And so this pressure of idolatry, and when we get to Revelation, we see that the idolatry is not so much uh, the literal falling down upon your face and worshiping of golden idols and statues. It is the worship of economic security. It is the, the worship of power. It is the worship of sexual immorality. And so we are constantly uh, pressured uh, to, to deny God and to accept what the world holds as power. But consistently throughout, not only Daniel, but also the, the rest of the prophets, um, with a very clear picture in Daniel chapter 9, there will come an anointed one. The ch promised child from Genesis 3, the promised king from First and Second Samuel, the promised prophet from the Pentateuch, he will come, and he will establish his reign, and his reign will last forever. And so when we get to the book of Revelation, which is picking up on a lot of the imagery out of the book of Daniel, it begins with seven letters to churches. And it is, it is, based, it is essentially Jesus Christ giving his report and evaluation of the state of the churches at that time, but also uh, a critique of all of the churches throughout time. Seven meaning uh, totality or completeness. And those seven churches, of the seven, five were compromised. Five were compromised. Two so much so that they were on the verge of what Revelation calls losing their witness and losing the spirit. And so the churches, generation after generation after generation, and that's how you have to think about um, churches. 
We think of our own cells and lives lasting 70 to 80 years, if we're lucky, or beyond that. Churches are to last hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And things do not die down like year by year, they die down by generations. And so these, these churches that are extremely compromised have at risk um, the, the possibility of the church existing in name only but not having the Spirit of God in them. And of the, of the other compromised churches, we saw that they were given to riches, to sexual immorality, to false teachings, but there was a glimmer of hope in each one of those because there remained in the churches a remnant of people that if, if the church repented, if they heard the message of, of Christ's warning that there was a, a chance for them, and a chance for all of them to, to come back and to enter into a, a, a life with Jesus Christ where he was their power and their hope and not the idols of the world. The two faithful churches out of the seven, the two faithful churches were small and poor and persecuted but faithful Perceived by the world as insignificant, but in the eyes of Jesus Christ, significant. It's important to note, it is important to note that faithful churches have been and will always be the minority. Have been and always will be the minority. And so as we think about our place in the context of, of our culture, well, there are a lot of churches I think it's important that we don't look out upon them all and say, listen, we are the only faithful ones and the rest are all apostate. And I think that we have a, a, a tendency as, as conservative evangelicals um, to look at any other church outside of our tradition and say there's no hope for them. You know, if, 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 if a church and if a people believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ and that he is the son of God and that through him our sins are forgiven, that is Christian. And there are a lot of traditions that hold that. Now, they may have some other teachings that are false and are un unbiblical and not true and are toward idolatry, just like five of the seven churches that we see here in Revelation. But we have to, see, we have to kind of look in a, in a broader way and not be so quick to judge but we also have to look and, and acknowledge that the faithful churches that are going to last for generations and not just have Jesus' name on the sign, but truly have his spirit within them, are likely to be small and poor and persecuted. And so we're not going to be exalted. We're not going to be uh, who everybody is looking at and thinking it is great. I mean, the church that thinks of itself as great at seven, church number seven, Laodicea, you think you are rich, you think you are great, you think you are powerful, you are none of these. You are blind, you are naked, and you are lame. And so, as we aspire and set a vision for us as a church, we, we need to have the perspective of, of faithfulness to Jesus Christ and, and a hold to his scriptures as our goal. Uh, not to be considered by the world or by other churches as having it all together. And we're called, all of these churches as the story of Revelation unfolds, uh, we are called to endure and abide in the midst of what is for certain 
increasing hostility as the spirit of the Antichrist continues to emerge. The spirit of the Antichrist has been around since the apostles, and it will continue to unfold and emerge and take shape, and especially as, as the coming of Christ is imminent, it will become much more clear. But the message is very similar to that of what the people of God in, in Babylon, literally in Daniel's time, were called to. Resist idolatry. Resist sexual immorality because sexual immorality is a window into faithlessness, okay? It seems like it's minor. seems like it's not a big deal. And in our increasingly sexualized and permissive culture, it's a challenge. But it is a window into eventually throwing out Jesus. Finding life in economic security, also another window into denying Christ and resist finding life in the world's power structures. Again, pursuing worldly power, worldly systems of power, uh, is another window into denying Christ. And so we find in these two books this constant warning against Babylon, but constant hope, even in the midst of severe persecution and opposition, the hope of Jesus Christ the King returning and establishing his, his eternal kingdom. And so for today, for us, again, we should not expect the culture to affirm us. We should not. We should increasingly expect hostility. And, you know, it, evangelical Christianity especially since the late 1800s, has always had, here in, in the States, has always had kind of this, uh, when we lost our, our places of power in the social and cultural and political and, and economic places of this country in the mid to late 1800s, we, we have always kind of had this uh, us, them, militant, suspicious attitude towards the world. Uh, I think too much so. I think too much so, uh, because we disengaged. We disengaged substantively. And what we're seeing right now, what we're seeing right now is, um, I think, increasing validity in being really skeptical and suspicious and hesitant about where our culture is headed. Um, and it, which is kind of a, it's a little bit of a shift for me in terms of, the significance of the alarm, and I'll continue to explain it as we go. But we should increasingly expect hostility and not affirmation, and not just from what we consider to be the, the quote, pagan world. We should, we should consider that that's going to be a possibility from other churches, right? From other churches, because we, five of the seven were compromised, and they are giving themselves to the, to the world. And they're going to be critical of the churches that are not. Um, our witness, and the, the big point of, of Revelation certainly, and I believe also Daniel in some very significant ways, is, is the ongoing presence of our witness. And when I say witness, I'm not just talking about our sharing the gospel with other people. All right, the, the scriptures are clear. We are called to, to give a reason for the hope that we have. We are called to... Um, 
communicate and answer people when they have questions about the substance of our faith and the wisdom that they see in our lives and the beauty that they should be seeing in our lives, okay? We are called to share the gospel, but, but significantly our witness is not just in what we communicate to people about Jesus Christ, it's, it's how we're living. And it is always how we are living that is the witness that God is wanting because what is, what is going on, what we learned out of Ephesians is that there is a, an invisible realm of witnesses and that the church demonstrating love and unity as all nations, all tongues, all peoples coming together, all socioeconomic classes, different cultures, different backgrounds from different religions. If, if Christ can unify a people coming from all of these places who live together as God's family, who are sacrificially generous and kind and forgiving to one another, if, if Christ can do that, it is something that is beyond the powers of this world. Because as you can see, we, as cultures, we are in conflict, and it is increasingly getting bad around the world. And so our witness is going to come from a distinct lifestyle where Jesus Christ is Lord and King, where we hold to his teachings. Titus, it's beautiful. Titus is about witness as a church. We live in such a way that our enemies can say nothing bad about us because of the extent of our love amongst the, of ourselves and throughout the world. We honor God and do not revile him, our lives. Not just our words, but our lives. And the third one is that we, our lives make the teachings of our Lord and Savior beautiful, beautiful. The world sees that it's beautiful. They may not agree with the premises and the assumptions and the teachings of Jesus that get us to this beautiful life. But if they look at our lives, they say, you know what, that is a, that's beautiful. I can't say anything bad about them because it's beautiful and they are giving themselves in love to one another and to the world, and to the world. That is what is to be our witness. They may kill us because of what we believe, all right? They may kill us because we don't affirm their power structures or their idolatries, but they will see that we're beautiful and they will see that we are loving them. And their hostility towards us will only go against their, their already growing stack of debts against God. So we should increasingly see in our culture um, continued growth of God, his gospel, and the advancement of it in, in, the, in, in Western culture, in America. Um, but it's going to look a little different. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's what Jesus said. So there's going to be an ongoing advancement of the church. But again, it's going to look a little different. I want to just pull up a, a quote here from the third pastor of the church, Tim Keller. Um, in 2013, by proxy, just kidding. He says this, is he, he was, this is, in 2013 he was asked to come and speak at a forum and it was all um, journalists present and they just wanted to hear his perspective on the future of conservative evangelicalism. And he says this, conservative Protestant Christianity, which I far prefer the term, so conservative Protestant Christianity is 
from this point forward, the official term that we'll use, is going to be growing moderately in numbers and greatly in cultural diversity and racial diversity in a fragmented culture. So our culture is increasingly breaking apart. Conservative Protestant Christianity is gonna grow. It's not gonna grow super fast. It's not gonna spread across and affect the entire nation. We've, we've been there, done that, it's not gonna happen. We'll steadily grow. And it's gonna have some different qualities to it. He says, conservative Protestant Christianity is going to become consciously outside the box politically. So for generations, we've tried to enter into the political sphere for dominance and control. And even though it, it seems like, even though it seems like uh, that is not the case because of some of the aspects of the Trump administration. Um, I do not think what's happening in the Trump administration and the influence that evangelicals have there uh, is substantive or anything that definitely does not express um, evangelicalism as a whole. All right, so there may be some pushback on that. You can have some questions about that as we have our Q&A time. But we are moving away from, I would say that the emerging generations, I mean, you know, when, when, when uh, Trump won and you, you had some, you know, pundits and some people on the, 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 in the media and I was like hearing names that I thought, oh my goodness, that person is still around. I think what we see is, is, is um, not what is emerging. It's not the new generation of, of conservative Protestant Christianity that has any sort of influence in, in the Trump administration. Um, so even though it seems like something else is going on, what's emerging in the new generation of conservative Protestantism uh, is not gonna reflect itself politically. And he says it's going to be um, not consciously outside the box theologically. One of the great qualities of the emergent conservative Protestantism um, is that it is going to be increasingly theologically sound. Increasingly theologically sound. There, and this has been a subject of, of, of cultural commentary, not just by Christians, but also from uh, outside uh, students of, of the culture, secular students and s scholars, um, there is a, a resurgence of desire to know the orthodox historical teachings of Jesus Christ. There is, a, is, a, there is an understanding and a sense that if we don't get back to um, some of the, the historical traditions and the, and the deep theological ideals and the, the deep pursuit of, of following Jesus and abiding in him and his teachings that we're just gonna be increasingly looking like American Western culture. And so that's another quality. Third, it is going to get more and less culturally influential simultaneously with the end result in doubt. So here's what he's saying. Broadly, we are not going to influence the, influence the culture like we did in the 15, 16, 17, and early 1800s. Broadly, that's not gonna be happening. What you're going to see, though, is pockets of cultural influence like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego. So in, in places, 
in places we're going to see uh, cultural influence. It's not going to be widespread, but we're going to see it really significant um, throughout our culture in, in isolated ways. And I think he's really accurate in that description. We must be increasingly alert to the pressures from Babylon and resolutely stand firm against the temptations. The desire and use of power, worldly power, political, economic power, is of the enemy. The increasingly sexualized culture, we have to be very, very sensitive because we're still dealing with sin. We have to be loving and understanding, and, and we can't come across as always coming down upon and judging. All sin is sin, and Christ calls all of us to, to, to love our enemies and to be gentle, and to be gentle and understanding, knowing that, we, as, Paul, as Paul says in Titus, do not come down on the world with judgmentalism. Do not come down on the world without deep consideration and grace towards people because you were once like them. You were once like them. But we've got to resist the temptation of being like them. And we've got to resist the hope, and I think that this is just as strong as the temptation to sexual immorality. Finding hope in economic security. Biblically, God wants us to prosper financially. God wants us to save and to have enough to pass on to not only the next generation, but the generation after that. Those are biblical ideals. Those are wise living principles that you see in both the Old and New Testaments. But God also calls us to be generous and sacrificial and giving and not given ourselves to, to gluttony, which is basically just consuming anything you can because you can. We are to be prudent and vigilant and disciplined in our use of money and to enjoy it, 1 Timothy 6, but to be very generous with those who are in need and to not see it as our hope or our strength or the promise. So we've got to embrace this reality of, of, a, of a need to get deeper and more vigilant and more serious while we recognize that we're becoming a minority and there's hostility. Now, to what degree, so we've got the Antichrist in Revelation and we've got exile in Daniel. To what degree are we in exile and in a nation ruled by the Antichrist? Where are we at? Where are we at? So some would argue that we are fully there and suggest significant measures to protect ourselves from the state of exile and the rule of the Antichrist that we're in. And there, there are two books I would just mention, no quotes, but two books that are interesting in their, because their conclusion is the same, but they're books written by two different very types of people. The first book is called um, the Twilight of American Culture by Morris Berman. This came out about maybe 15 years ago. And Morris Berman doesn't know Jesus, does not know God, would not associate himself with, with any sort of, of biblical religion at all. 
He's looking at our culture from the perspective of we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We are no longer a, a nation, um, if we ever were, that is ruled and in pursuit of glorious ideals. And he says, we, we are like Rome. We are like the ancient complex societies that have given themselves to sexual immorality and to selfishness and way too much money on the military um, and we, a loss of a national spirit and, and increased illiteracy. And, and the more money you spend on problems doesn't seem to solve anything. And it just gets worse. And so, twilight of American culture. And he says, you know, we might have to live... We might have to pursue strategies like Benedict and the monks did and kind of preserving Western civilization in isolated communities. This guy doesn't know Jesus. And then just last, just last month, actually this month, uh, the 13th of March, a book came out called The Benedict Option by a gentleman named uh, Rod Dreher, and he's a Christian. And he kind of goes through the similar kind of cultural analysis that Morris Berman did, but from a biblical Christian standpoint, and says, you know, we are, we are in the dark ages and the barbarians are at, are at the gates. And he proposed what he calls the Benedict Option, which is the name of the book. And basically, it's we, we need to create Christian villages and Christian communities and recognize that... Um, the world is going to and is destroying us. And if we don't kind of, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a significant and good book in, in a lot of ways. And there's, but there's been some reaction against it seems too withdrawing. And I wouldn't necessarily say that. But I think we're at a point, if, if both secular and Christian um, critics are looking at our world and saying, listen, we are really in a dire place. Um, and if by our own perspective we see this, this tidal wave of, of a worldly culture emerging, um, which I think it is, I, th I think we need to step back and say, you know what, it, things seem to be getting um, a lot more serious pretty quickly. Now, there are some that say that's not the case. These, these proposed solutions are a little extreme. And I'm not gonna to come to any sort of conclusion today, but here are what I think are some challenges. The secularization of culture. And what I mean by that is that we are moving away from a, a culture that doesn't just um, not believe in God, not believe in a higher moral authority, not believe in a creator. It is, it is also, in, this, in our secular age, a, a culture where the highest moral standard is living according to what my internal self is telling me to be true and authentic to myself. That's our secularity. Being true to myself, being authentic to my inner feelings is, is what it means to be faithful and moral in this age. And that is going to, that, that is going to, lead, that is increasingly leading to a society given to its self-centeredness and selfishness. I think another challenge is the sexualization of culture and the temptations that come with that. And not just the underserved, I mean, it's, it's so much out there. And our, our addictions to sexual immorality and, 
and, and pornography and the commodification of, of sex, um, it is a huge challenge to us to simply be faithful and not enter in through that doorway that leads to the denial of Christ. And with this sexualization, uh, it's, it's the, the infiltration of it into our um, schools and workplaces and social and political and civic spheres through law. And the, the pressure that we are going to be increasingly under uh, to conform and agree with and accept the cultural norms in regards to gender and sexuality uh, or else face very significant uh, challenges in our governments and in our workplaces because of the, the laws that will emerge because our positions will increasingly be seen as bigotry tantamount to North American, African American racism and slavery. That's what it will be. And it is going to be a huge challenge. It is going to be, I think it's going to be the greatest challenge that we face as biblical Christians in the coming era. And we see these secular influences and sexual influences through the widespread and ubiquitous technologies that we use. You know, if, you're, if your children have smartphones, okay, and I don't, some of you, a lot of you have kids that aren't using smartphones yet, obviously, but late grade school, middle school, high school, they have access to the world in unprecedented ways. And let me tell you, our culture does not care, by and large, what their children can access through technology. And it spreads. And we we become what we take in. We do. That's what humans do. Our mind, we we renew ourselves through the renewal of our minds. If we are feeding our minds all of the secular and sexual influences of our age, we will become what our minds consume. That is just true. So this brings up another great challenge is the context for the raising of our children. Uh, We have public schooled all of our kids. But let me tell you, it is increasingly difficult to walk the line of their participation uh, in the public school arena uh, and them maintaining faithfulness. Now, I know that there are a lot of people that have seen that that line came a long time ago. And, I, and, and you know, and a lot of those things are issues of conscience. But um, if you are going to uh, public school your children, you need to stay on top of everything that's going on. And I'm not saying you can't walk through that process and interact with them and influence them and help them to think through things. The, the things that we talk about at the dinner table as a family are things that I'd never thought we would talk about at the dinner table with my kids in middle school and high school. But we're interacting on it. And the kids, our kids see in the context of this culture uh, that the world sees us as a beautiful family, not without its challenges, and they all know our neighbors know and the kids' family, uh, the friends of our kids, they know the challenges that we have as a family. Our neighbors know the challenges that we have as a family, but they see a lot of beauty. 
And our kids can see this contrast, and they see the contracts of the lack of beauty in a lot of their families and the beauty that we have as a family, and that beauty helps them see that there is, that there is something that the teachings of Jesus Christ and the affirmation of some of these more, quote, traditional ideals, they can see what it produces and the value of it. But we can't be like just maybe a generation or certainly two generations ago, we can't be assuming that the culture is going to transmit the ideals of Christianity because it does not anymore. It does not anymore at all. And the pressure towards greed and economic security is always going to be a temptation. It's always going to be a temptation. So these are the challenges, I think, that we face. And it is Babylon. In every possible way, it is Babylon. Regardless of your conclusion of how bad things are, I really like this quote from Rod, who, again, the author of the Benedict Auction. He says this, the best witness Christians can offer to post-Christian America is simply to be the church as fiercely and creatively a minority as we can manage. Just be the church. And I really like that because the church, in how God has created it and ordered it, is in its ordering, it's not, the, it's not a, a, a Benedictine order or any, or any sort of monastic order, but the scriptures do call it an order. In Ephesians 3, it is the oikonomia, which is the house ordering of the church, the house law, the ordered lives of the church. It is an order that is designed to thrive in Babylon if we can maintain it. The gospel and the spirit of God are our power. Uh, the structure for it in the church and, and how we have um, elders and gifted leaders protecting, equipping, and leading, and we have everybody loving one another and generosity and giving and family order. There is an order, and it protects us. It is the family of God. And this, in, this, in this order, which we've really tried to embody in our house churches and in our teaching, uh, it is a mechanism for thriving in Babylon. And so as you look at our, as, as you look at our plan... And if you just want to take a look at page four, if you have it, you see a chart. There are three big ways that we see our work in this world. It really is not helpful when that clock is not working up there. It's been, it's been four o'clock for the last few weeks. Um, there are three big spheres, our work, our community, and our expansion efforts. Our work, everybody has a calling for work, paid work, unpaid work, we are, we are working. And we work so that we can, we can affect and care for uh, our families and the church and the ministry and contribute to the world and contribute to and influence culture and increasingly make it beautiful and prosperous. And we are called to work in order to meet the pressing needs where the problems in our society need to be addressed. Community, as a community, we, we preach and we worship and we testify to the gospel publicly. And then as a community, we love one another as a family. And in our expansion efforts, we are constantly trying to start new house churches 
and to contribute to church planting. And we, we have funded church planters uh, in, in South America and here in the States. And we can continue to hope to start new house churches and start our own churches in the future. And we contribute to the, to the movement of the gospel in other places. And so we see some, some early work that we're doing uh, in, in the country of, of, of Portugal and in collaboration with them to Portuguese-speaking countries in Africa. And a part of the Acts 29 network of churches, which is a global network of 600 churches, we contribute monthly to Acts 29 for the funding of, of church planters into places where there is no gospel in a lot of uh, uh, hostile countries, including uh, Islamic and Muslim countries where it is very difficult. So we are supporting those efforts. And so that's kind of big picture with the, the, the ultimate goal is human flourishing and cultural renew and transformation of our own lives into the lives of others and the ongoing witness of the gospel in this world. That's what we're doing. Again, you can read through the plan in, in more detail. We haven't changed this in a long time. And it's really become a lot more clear as we've gotten older. This is what we're doing. This is what we've been doing. So again, I'd encourage you to read this. Not a whole lot of change. We're just simply wanting to deepen and grow stronger in these things. So we've got some short-term strategies as we've kind of come to a close here that, that you're gonna see in 2017 uh, towards the fulfillment of these big ideas. And these aren't all of the things that we're doing. They're the key ones that we think are going to be important. Obviously, the first one is that we're going to combine in July. We're going to combine as two sites. We think that we will be stronger in our public witness. And we spent a whole sermon on this at the end of last year. If you want to go back and listen to that, uh, the last, uh, I think it was December 18th, if you want to look it up on the web. Um, a deeper explanation as to that. But we think we can be stronger, stronger in our public witness when, if we can come together. Um, and it's going to create a lot more efficiencies in regards to our, our money and our teams. And we think present the gospel and us as a church more effectively uh, publicly in this culture. Uh, we're going to increase our leadership and shepherding capacity. We hope to add two elders also by the summer, and uh, those, those men are in a process right now with us, and we'll make those, those uh, names uh, known, and there'll be a, a time of, of pub, public comment on, on those men as well, but we hope to go from four to six elders, and we also hope uh, this year to see Lawrence even come on uh, more time with the church. We want to strengthen our house churches. We want to see our elders start visiting the house churches that don't have elders regularly. So a couple times a month, every house church will have an elder uh, visiting, at least one time. And we're trying to work those plans out. We want to see elders involved in, in more of the house churches, which is why one of the reasons why we need um, more elders. And we want to see uh, more house churches started. And we, we can see pretty much right now by the start of the fall, we'll have three new house churches and there's some things that we can do to increasingly strengthen the effectiveness of the, the teaching and the shepherding that takes place in the house churches as well. Uh, some of you are involved in the, the faith and work initiative that Ryan and Micah have been leading up, and there we have a little study cohort. Uh, as we've been talking about for a couple years now, we want to we deepen our collective understanding about our callings 
Every single one of us, uh, our callings and our work and how it contributes to what we're doing as a church, but to the purposes of God broadly as well in this world. And so we hope to see uh, house churches beginning to get into some of those ideas and some of the materials and books that they've been reading, which really gives greater meaning and purpose to what we're doing the majority of our lives in our, in our work. And so those are some of the strategies. You can, again, you can read about them in more detail. And to come to a conclu- conclusion here, what I really want to give God the glory for is, is establishing our steps to this point. Uh, the ideals, the vision, the, the house churches, the community, uh, the preaching and teaching, um, the spirit of our church, the spirit of our church is really, uh, it really Im- it has embodied the early vision that we had. And I just want to give glory to God for that. And um, I believe that we have established the foundations, again, by God's grace and spirit and word. Uh, we've established the foundations to what I believe can be a church that literally lasts for hundreds of years. That would be, that, that would just be so, to always be hearing, you know, in Revelation, let, let him who hears hear and repent uh, and abide in me and I will abide in you and you will continue to flourish and abide as a church. That is, that is our goal. So don't be alarmed to the hostility. Don't be alarmed to the growing secularization and, and, and challenges. It is this culture, uh, it is life in this culture that the gospel and the church are to thrive in, and we can thrive. We're not at the point yet, I think, where we're gonna be killed for our faith. I think that's a few generations off, but it's going to get hard. But I think we can thrive. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you that you have given us the promise to thrive. The promise to thrive and find life and joy and happiness and beauty, even in, with the challenges that we've got. And that is very hopeful. We can live in Babylon and thrive as citizens of the kingdom of Christ. God, deepen us, deepen us, deepen us in that hope and in that reality. In your son's name, amen.